Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, as we continue our study together through the Gospel of Mark. For those of you who are visiting with us, I would encourage you to look in the Pew Bible in front of you and find Mark chapter 8 and follow along. And we're going to read today verses 22 through 30. Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 30. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village, and when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. For over 100 years now, whether it be at a graduation, a funeral, or an English class, Americans have been citing Robert Frost's poem, The Road Less Traveled. I'm sure you remember it. It's probably the only poem you remember from high school. It starts off this way. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. I'm sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. And then it continues to talk about these two different paths, and it concludes with what seems to be this epic ending. And I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. Ford commercials, Mentos, Nicorette, the multi-billion dollar insurance company AIG, the job search website Monster.com, Melissa Etheridge, George Strait, even shows like Taxi, The Twilight Zone, and Battlestar Galactica have all leaned on these lines to communicate something that they seem or want you to think is profound and deep. On a word-for-word basis, this is probably the most popular piece of literature ever written by an American. It's been the definitive poem to exhort us to choose the right path, to make courageous decisions. But the funny thing about the poem is, if you do the research, current scholars have concluded that Frost never meant it this way. He just simply wanted to talk about a time that he was walking through the woods and saw two paths and Ended up taking another one. But it's stuck with us nonetheless. Even though Frost never intended it for it to have this type of profound meaning, we like the imagery. We all understand. We, we get the fact that there are forks in the road of life that lead us to entirely different destinies. Therefore, we can't let the poem go. We know this to be true. 
there have been and there will be certain places and time that forever change the rest of your life. Things that permanently adjust your trajectory. The big ones stand out, don't they? Where you go to college, what type of career you pursue, your companion for life, your location, your, your house. These things are built in. They're, they're unavoidable. They lead us to a thousand other possibilities that would have otherwise been shut off to us had we not pursued one of those things. Even avoiding those things is unavoidable because in choosing not to do one, we're faced with a whole nother list of consequences and outcomes. It's impossible to escape. But even though we don't know where the paths of life ultimately will lead us, and there's a lot of pressure associated with every decision we make, wouldn't it be nice to know that there could be one decision, one question, if answered correctly, if chosen appropriately, that would ensure the ultimate outcome of all the others? I mean, even better. Not just if there was one question that could make the rest of them right, but what if we had the answer? What if we knew exactly where we would end up and how everything would work out and be okay if we would only get this one right? Well, you have it. According to the Spirit-inspired author of Mark, the most eternally significant question, the true fork-in-the-road experience for all of us awaits us in this text, actually in his text, not just this one. This is what he's been doing since chapter 1, verse 1. Do you remember? He told them at the very beginning that he is declaring to them the good news, the good news par excellence, the good news that would change everything else about them. And this good news is wrapped up in the identity of the man he's been describing in this book thus far, Jesus. And he says, it becomes good news when you realize that this Jesus is, and here's a term we haven't heard since chapter 1, verse 1, the Christ, the Son of God. That's what the whole book's about. He wants his people to understand that this Jesus is the Christ. And he's been trying to show us this over and over and over again. He's been dropping hints. And now he gets explicit in his connection that this Jesus actually is that Christ that was promised from long ago. We even see him warming up to this through the text that we studied last week. As we saw this previous account of permanent blindness and temporary blindness and Jesus trying to draw his disciples out to understand who he really is and yet it seems like they just still don't get it. They don't get who he is. But it's finally here. It's finally here in this text that it happens. Two stories, one meaning. That is this. Jesus' followers eventually identify him as the Messiah. When you look at these two stories and this whole turning point of the Gospel of Mark, the thing that he has been trying to draw out the entire time, the thing that he wants to make explicit is that if you are a follower of Christ, if you're someone who has received the life-changing good news of the Gospel, you will eventually understand that Jesus is the Messiah. This is the one thing, if properly understood, that makes everything out turn out 
okay in eternity. So here's my strategy today in walking you through this relatively simple text. We do have two stories, and I want to just walk you through those, help you understand them in the way that the original audience would have understood them. But then I want to get to the significance of those stories. So, just bear with me. We're going to do story one, story two, and then we'll draw out the significance of these two things together at the very end. Let's look at our first story together. It is... If I were to give it a title, it's called The Preview of Identifying Jesus as the Messiah. Story 1 is really the preview of identifying Jesus as the Messiah, as we see in verses 22 through 26. Look at the first verse here, just to get the context. He says, And they came to Bethsaida, and some people were brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. Now, while they're in Bethsaida, I want to give you just a little bit of a picture a few weeks ago, I drew my imaginary map, which is just a big circle of my hand right here. <laughs> uh, and this is uh, the Sea of Galilee. They were over here in this part. Bethsaida is up here in the northern part. So they have made their way to this little fishing town that they have yet to be in in the Gospel of Mark. We know from other accounts that they have been here before. But do you remember what was going on? It's significant that he's making his way out of this most popular area of Galilee because we understand from our passage last week that Jesus wasn't intending to do a big-scale public ministry anymore. He's moving out of the, the populated Jewish centers, and he's going to focus now on his time with his disciples. And so as he's on his way out, the text makes it clear that he has made his way to Bethsaida. He's working his way out of Jewish territory. He's distancing himself from the crowds and the religious leadership who refused him. And while he's there, it just records that a blind man is once again brought to Jesus. Jesus doesn't seek out this blind man. He's brought to Jesus. Then Jesus takes him out of the city. Seems like he's still trying to avoid the spotlight. And then notice at the end, he tells the blind man not to enter the village when he's healed. So he seems to be really concerned about maintaining privacy. But let's focus on the miracle itself. It, I want you to notice something that with details that are unique to an eyewitness account, Jesus himself is described here as doing something that he's done very similarly, very recently. Look at verses 23 and 24. He took the blind man by the hand, led him out of the village, and when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Now you have something similar and something unique about this miracle. Do you notice what's similar? Have we seen anything like this before? Look back in your Bibles just to chapter 7, verse 31, where Jesus healed the deaf man. There are a lot of similarities to that miracle. There was an undisclosed group of people bringing a man to Jesus with a miraculous need of perception. Jesus they ask Jesus to physically touch him. Jesus, in turn, takes him away from a public site. He touches him. He spits. He heals him. And then he directs him not to draw attention to the healing. There are eight things that are similar to this previous incident. And we understand that 
Jesus has been, and Mark especially, has been trying to prepare the readers for an understanding of who this Messiah is. And so these miracles of perception, these miracles of understanding, have actually been previews of the work that he's trying to do in the life of his own followers. And through the similarities that we see in this miracle, we're reminded of something very plain, very obvious, but if it's your first Sunday with us, let me point it out for you. Jesus, in healing the blind, has done something that up to this point in history has never been done. There is not a single record in the Old Testament of anyone receiving the miracle of restored sight. There's no accounts of this, or trustworthy accounts of this, in the pagan world. And we knew from our study just a couple weeks ago that passages like Isaiah 29, 18, Isaiah 35, 5, and Psalm 146, 8 all make the healing of blindness out to be something that only God himself could do. I think we think because of things like LASIK surgery that, oh, well, look, this is just a common thing and people, yeah, they, sometimes they're blind and like a cold, they get over it. It doesn't happen that way. Modern medicine, by the way, it wasn't invented until a little over 100 years ago. I mean, we're talking about for 1,900 years at least, there was never a possibility of blindness being reversed. This was the culture in which they lived. And then finally, somebody comes along being able to do this one thing that no one's ever seen before that the Old Testament attributes to God and God himself. So basically, what we have in this miracle is something being communicated that, hey, this guy has divine power. He has the ability to do something that only God can do. But do you notice something that's different here? As I told you, that this is the only miracle, excuse me, this miracle in particular is only recorded in the book of Mark. But think with me, what's different about this healing? What is Jesus doing here that we haven't seen him do before? Well, the first thing that we see is that he actually asks this man about the healing. He says, what do you see? Now, why has Jesus never done this before? Because he has always healed people, every time, instantaneously. But why would he here decide to heal this man in two stages? That's the other thing that's unique about this miracle. It's only partial. We know that Jesus has the capacity to heal anybody immediately and fully. And yet for some odd reason, here, he decides to do it in two steps, and he even decides to ask a question publicly so that the disciples who are watching would even understand that the miracle happens in two stages. Verse 25 continues, Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now again, Jesus has the capacity to do it all in one sweep, and yet for some reason, it's only after the second touch that this man's healed. And Mark gives us three intense verbs of perception. It's not just that the man could see. He could have said that. We believe that every word of the Bible is inspired, and these words in particular are Eye-opening, no pun intended. Notice this first one. It says, he opened his eyes. The, the literal translation of this is that he could see through. He could see through. It's, it's kind of like being able to see things clearly. I have okay vision, but I can imagine for those of you who do see things blurry without glasses, that difference 
of when you finally put that, those spectacles up to your face and everything becomes clear, it comes back into focus. For this man, everything became clear. It was an unprecedented measure of clarity for him. And it also adds that his sight was restored. That's a great word, restored. It, it was like it was back to the original perfect intention that God had intended. So if 2020 is what God intended for us, that is what this man had. He is restored, he's made good as new, and then I love this last one, he saw everything clearly. The literal word there is that of gazing at something, but there, there's another word added to it, one talking about depth and another talking about breadth. He could gaze at everything, he could see everything, and he could see it literally at a distance. And so... Mark seems to be really concerned that we know that this man could see, he could see well, Jesus could do what, exactly what he wanted to do, and in the end, the point of this is that Jesus alone can and does give full, final, and clear sight to those who are blind and imperceptive. Now, I'm not drawing out the significance yet, but I'm going to drop a hint. I'm going to repeat it. Jesus can and does give full final and clear sight to those who are blind and imperceptive. And then notice what happens in verse 26. He sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Bethsaida itself was a city, but it seems like Jesus is in a village, a small, well-connected neighborhood. For those of you who grew up in places like that where there were only a couple hundred people, you know what that's like. Why does he tell him not to go and enter the village? Why does he tell him to go straight to his own house? I think it's because a miracle of this nature in a small, well-connected place like that would have exploded Jesus' popularity like a match on a dry Christmas tree. He immediately would have been sucked back into another public healing ministry once everybody found out that this Jesus was there in their town and so he's trying to avoid being inundated by the crowds because, again, he is still focusing on his disciples. So this first story, it's a preview of gradually identifying the Messiah. We have a second story. second story is the profession. If I were to give the second story a title, it would be the profession. The profession identifying Jesus as the Messiah. It's all about what Peter ends up saying. Look at verses 27 to 30 again. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Now let me pause here. Do you notice where Jesus is going? It says that he goes with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now for those of us who live in America and don't care about geography outside of our own country, and it's just the way it is, let me give you some clues as to what first century readers would have thought about a place like Caesarea Philippi. It would have been known to both Romans and Jews. The Old Testament saints actually would have remembered that this same area was the focal point of Baal worship in the ancient Near East. We see that in the Old Testament record. The Jews also especially would have realized that once their country was taken over by the Greeks in the fourth century, that this particular city was influenced by Hellenism in ways uncharted because the Greeks believed that the nature god Pan actually came from or was born from this very city. Maybe you remember Pan from your Greek mythology class. He was the guy that was half goat, half human. We get our uh, word for the Pan flute from this very same god. 
He was considered to be the, the, the watcher of, of flocks and nature, and there was a temple that was resurrected there in his honor. So we've got two strikes. This isn't a very good place for people who are monotheistic Jews. Baal worship, the worship of the Greek god Pan. And then to put icing on the cake, this territory, once Rome takes over, gets transferred to Herod, he gives it to his son, and to curry favor with this newly deified emperor, Augustus or Octavian, who made himself out to be God, he says, you know what, why don't we name the city in honor of him? And so they do. Name it Caesarea, in honor of Caesar. So we have a pagan city that was the birthplace, supposedly, of a Greek god that's been dedicated to a newly deified emperor. And Jesus goes there to teach his disciples about who he really is. It's rather interesting, is it not? It's in the midst of this area, dedicated to false gods. As far away from the Jewish holy places as could possibly be, that Jesus' true identity is finally revealed, thereby countering the claims of all emperors to being gods upon the earth. But moving on from that context, look at the actual line of questioning that Jesus uses to get his disciples to the point that they finally realized who he is. Verse 27 says, And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? Now there's this first question. Jesus is going to bring up the topic again of identifying him. This is so important to him. This is on the top of his priority list in teaching his disciples. But he doesn't go straight for them. He begins to ask about people in general. What do they think? And the question itself is a remarkable one because it assumes that Jesus had such a striking persona and preaching ministry that it demanded comment or explanation. Like, I couldn't go to you in the crowd today and say, who do people in Naples think that I am? Nobody cares who I am. And nobody cares who you are. You're just not that remarkable. Sorry to burst your bubble. But Jesus, there was something about him where he could actually ask questions like, who's everybody saying that I am? His, his life itself demanded an explanation, and we know this to be true. Some personalities in history, some historical figures, for better or worse, demand an explanation from everyone with whom they come in contact. When me and Tanya were talking about this this week, I was trying to think of historical figures in which that was true, other than Jesus. And the odd thing was, I could only think of um, weird ones. <laughs> I could only think of odd, strange people that I've come in contact with, or that we know of, or, or evil people that just demand an explanation that you can't ignore. Probably one of the most famous from the 20th century would be Adolf Hitler himself. I mean, nobody just thinks, oh, there's a normal guy. They think, what, what was wrong with him? How how did he get that way? What was up? Or if you've ever had this experience, I've had it happen twice now in the last two years. Situations in which we had a crazy person come into the church service and interrupt it. Uh, one at Capitol Hill when we were there, a guy with cell phones on his head, literally like he had a special hat made with a bunch of different cell phones. And he had a prayer rug, he had a dog with him, he was wearing some really weird clothes, and he comes into the middle of the Wednesday night prayer service he lays his rug down, um, doesn't sit in a seat, he sits on his knees in the middle of the thing and then starts looking at all of his cell phones. Look, there was no just, oh, there's another guy. That demanded an explanation. 
And if you want the explanation, we'll talk, because it was a long one. But it seems strange that we have these figures that we know they demand an explanation, and we can't think of any positive except for Jesus. Jesus was the only person who broke into the realm of time that demanded such an explanation in this way. He was unavoidable. And I think Josh McDowell has actually been one of the best ones to understand this in recent days. For those of you who do not know who Josh McDowell is, uh, he was a a, a skeptic who was seeking answers to life's big questions. He uh, tried church for a little while in his teenage years, and then he rejected... um, religion at an early age. He became an avowed skeptic. And while he was in university, he accepted a challenge from his, well, not friends, but from some people who knew him to disprove the historical credibility of the Christian religion. And in his arrogance, he took up the challenge, and ironically, it led to his conversion. He came to faith in Christ. But the titles of his two most important books that many of you would know actually illustrate This perfectly. Two titles. One, More Than a Carpenter. More Than a Carpenter. And the second, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. I like those titles. Because they we know that we were dealing with more than just a Jewish carpenter. We know that everything that Christ did and said and the impact that he's made upon history, it demands a verdict, a decision of some kind. It is unavoidable. And Jesus knew this about the people that he was surrounded by in that day. They had to come to some conclusion about him. And what was their understanding? What was it that was leading them to think in some way about him? Were we... Follow a little exercise with me. Maybe take your Bible. Turn with me to Mark chapter 1. I'm not going to read it. I just want you to lay your eyes on chapter titles. This week I had an intriguing exercise in which I tried to go through and think, all right, what was it that Jesus had done then, at least in the book of Mark, that had so far demanded a verdict? What was it that made people think that he was more than a carpenter? And I just want you to lay your eyes, because many of you use the same Bible when you come. You'll remember some of these stories. Lay your eyes on these things as I summarize for you what Mark has presented so far in the category of evidence that demands a verdict about Jesus. Chapter 1, this Jesus was recognized as a dispenser of the Holy Spirit by a historically verifiable, highly revered prophet of Judaism. He was affirmed as the Son of God from a voice from heaven. He resisted for 40 days a satanic onslaught under compulsion of the Holy Spirit. He preached the imminence of the long-promised kingdom. He exercised unique, unparalleled authority over men, the Old Testament teaching, demons, disease, and defilement. That's just chapter 1. Let's move on to chapter 2. Chapter 2. He's presented as the forgiver of sin, and he proves this with a physical miracle. He's also presented as the lover of sinners, the liberator from legalistic expressions of the law. In chapter 3, Crowds clamor for him, unclean spirits commend him, yet the religious leaders and even his own family resist him. Chapter 4 and 5. He intentionally obscures his teaching and then calms a storm, conquers a demonic army, and cures an incurable disease and irreversible death. Just a little bit of evidence. Chapter 6, we'll keep going. Even though his hometown and the political leaders refuse him, he exercises creative power to feed thousands just like Yahweh did in the Old Testament. Then, he tramples the unconquerable sea under his feet, just like Yahweh did in the Old Testament. 
And then, as a side note, he banishes disease from an entire region. Chapter 7 and 8. After shaming the religious elite, he shows himself to be the long-promised light to the Gentiles, providing them with spiritual deliverance, physical healing, and supernatural sustenance, which religious leaders once again resist and his followers once again fail to understand. Listen, I may not be a lawyer, but I'm confident that such displays of evidence, assuming at least a shred of historical veracity, demand a verdict. And what was their verdict? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. After all that, the crowd comes up with, he must be some kind of a prophet. Prophet's not a bad title. It's a good start. I mean, a prophet in that day was a, it's a highly respectable answer. It was an honorable title. It, prophets, I mean, they were understood to be the recipients of divine revelation. They were like divine press secretaries. They were lawyers who, who represented God. I mean... These prophets, by the way, when they thought of a prophet, they would often present miraculous evidence to back up their case. And they were the visible human intermediaries of an unseen spiritual God. It was a big deal to be a prophet. Particularly, they think, he's not just a prophet, but some thought John the Baptist and Elijah. Now, those are two of the best prophets. I mean... Elijah's success as a prophet is unparalleled in the Old Testament. And then he has that unique exit. Do you remember that from your stories in Sunday school in 2 Kings chapter 11? Where he actually doesn't even die, but he gets into a chariot of fire and goes to heaven. It's a pretty big deal of a prophet. Because of that, the people who were studying the Old Testament of the time believed that he, Elijah, would be the forerunner of the great and terrible day of the Lord when he would come back on the earth and fix it all. So again, it's pretty honorable. Not only do they think Elijah, some people think John the Baptist. Remember, Herod thought John the Baptist. Why John the Baptist? What's the big deal about him? Well, for 400 years, the people have not heard from God. They haven't recognized any prophets. And then finally, the Judaism of the day recognizes that God has begun to speak again, and he's doing it through John the Baptist. Nobody denies John the Baptist and his importance. And they thought that he might be the one who would bring in God's kingdom as a prophet. And then Deuteronomy 18 led others to believe that there would be a final prophet who would come and prepare the way of the Lord. Listen, this is important, this is honorable, but what I want you to understand is that as laudatory as this identification was, it clearly wasn't good enough. It fell short as evidenced by Jesus emphatically asking them in verse 29, look at it, but who do you say that I am? The verb tense there, asked, can make it seem like you just asked them one time. It's actually an imperfect. It means that he was asking them constantly. He was trying to draw this out of them. The implication was that that answer that they gave, or that the popular people gave, was not enough. There's something more. And having described the popular opinion and reintroduced the crucial subject of his identity, 
He is now trying to separate them from the majority opinion, and he wants them to risk a personal confession. See, what you need to get here is that the people, the people, the, just the, the hoi polloi, the, the regular person, the dude on the street, they're going to identify Jesus in one way, and then the point in asking another question is that the followers of Jesus are going to understand Jesus in a different way. Okay? He's drawing a contrast. That's why he asked the question twice. All right, there's the popular people, there's just the normal guy, and then there's the follower of Christ, the disciple, the insider, if you will, and the outsider. What do insiders say about me? What do you guys say about Jesus? Those of you who have committed your lives to me. And then Peter, clearly answering on behalf of the group, says, You are the Christ. I don't know if this means much to you, but have you found yourself frustrated in recent weeks as we've been studying this and you keep asking, like, why don't they get it? Why don't they get it? Why don't they get it? And then here, finally, we get the relief we're looking for. They get it. Somebody gets it. Peter gets it. At least part of it. He gets the fact that this is the Christ. Now, question for us. What do we mean by the Christ? When Peter says that Jesus is the Christ, how is that any different from just Jesus being a prophet? How would you explain that to someone? What do you understand the term Christ to mean? I joked around about this a few weeks ago, but I think some people think that Jesus' last name is Christ. <laughs> it's not his last name. His name is Jesus. Christ is a title, a very special title given to him. So what does it mean to be the Christ? The word Christ is just a transliterated Greek word, Christos, meaning anointed one or the one anointed. It comes from a Hebrew word as well in the Old Testament. This translated one who was anointed. In the Old Testament, prophets were anointed, priests were anointed, kings were anointed, and these are people who, by the placing on of a special oil, they were set apart for special purposes, and the oil was just supposed to represent the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And so there were some unique and special office that's, offices that required an anointing. Just like we in our day would have special offices that require a swearing in. So also, it was unique to be a Messiah, a Mashiach, a anointed one. But notice here that Peter doesn't say that you are an anointed one. You aren't a prophet, you aren't a priest, you aren't a king. But the Greek is explicit. You are the Christ. The anointed one. See, there was a continual promise when you read the Old Testament carefully that a special messianic kingly figure would be sent by God to rescue God's people from their oppression. One who would fix the predicament of God's people that they had found themselves in because of their sin. Now, I want to be fair to you, and you need to be intellectually honest with other people, by the way, it isn't spelled out as clearly in the Old Testament as you would want it to be. I mean, generally speaking, this is what an Old Testament reader would glean and understand about the Messiah. They would know that the Messiah, whoever he is, was the promised one of Jewish hope. They would know him to be a Davidic redeemer or a rescuer or a hero they would know him to be something of an eschatological king through whom God would deliver Israel from its enemies and cause them to live in peace. 
Now, I want you to understand that because they get that there's going to be this hero, this chosen one that's going to come, but they're not all that clear yet on how he's going to do the saving. They're not all that clear yet on how he's going to do the rescuing. The hints are there in the Old Testament, but they haven't put it together yet, and this will become important in a minute. But all I want you to get is when we say that Jesus is the Christ, as opposed to just a prophet, we are talking about Him being the one to in the end right all wrongs. I, in, for probably ten years now, I've been reading for my own good and also for the good of my children a little book that I give out, we give away to people every time they have a baby, <laughs> called the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones. Um, the reason why I like this particular story Bible, the reason why I always give it out, is because it does a good job at putting the Bible together as one big story. For those of you who are literature aficionados, it puts together the meta-narrative of Scripture. It, it, it captures the whole like conflict and satisfaction. And it sums it up, as opposed to most story Bibles, it sums it up in the person of Jesus and not just moral exhortations. Be like Joshua. Be like Jonah. Be like Daniel. Or don't be like Jonah. Be like Daniel. It makes Jesus out to be the hero. And I've actually been pleased with this aspect of my son's education in recent days. He's been in these reading classes, and I wasn't doing this when I was in the first grade. But like he keeps getting these little books, and he's asking, all right, Dad, what's the conflict? I'm like, the con what are you talking about? He's like, what's the conflict, and what's the resolution? You know, those of us who are adults, we understand that every book, every movie, everything you come in contact with, it starts off with a regular situation, a scenario, then something goes wrong, and then somebody's got to make it right. That's the way it works. My son understands this now. When he reads any little book, he's asking these two questions. What's the conflict? What's the solution? What I want you to understand is that when we read the Bible, we see a conflict. We see everything go really bad because of man's sin, and a curse is actually pronounced upon the entire earth. People start dying. Things get worse and worse and worse and worse. And you know what it means to believe that Jesus is the Christ? It means to believe that He is the solution. He is the one that fixes it. He is not just a prophet who says, well, one day somebody's going to come and fix it. No, he is the one that fixes it. That's the difference. That's what Peter is confessing. You are not a Christian until you recognize Jesus Christ of Nazareth to be that chosen hero. While Peter and the others don't understand the details of this, at least not fully, they at least realize this, that this Jesus is God's hero. And notice how it ends in verse 30. It's so strange. It says, And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. The word choice here is surprisingly strong. The the word for strictly charged is the same word used back in chapter 1, verse 25, and chapter 3, verse 12, to silence demons, listen to this, same word, used to silence demons who made something of a true confession about Jesus. Do you remember that? The demons so far have the best theology in the book. And in both cases, 
Jesus strictly charges them not to tell anyone about him. And we're left wondering, like, hey, well, why wouldn't he let them tell other people about him? It's because they don't understand, even though they understand that he is the Christ, they don't understand the plan. (laughs) They understand the man, they don't understand the plan. They don't understand how he's going to get the job done. And so they need to be extremely careful that they don't tell anyone that he's the Christ until they fully understand everything that the Christ is going to be. Because you know what the normal guy on the street would have thought if they knew that Jesus was the Christ? Yay! He's going to kill the Romans! He's going to kick out all the Gentiles. He's going to set up a political kingdom on this earth and make me fat and rich and happy. And that's not what Jesus was coming to do. We're going to see in the next few chapters that he is coming to do actually the opposite of that. At least to start off with. It is so countercultural, his definition of the Christ and what he's going to accomplish, his way of getting about what God wants is insane. I would say it this way, that even though the disciples here finally identify Jesus as the Christ. Their their vision may have improved, but they do not know yet how this hero will bring about the long-awaited deliverance. They are not yet clear that He will be crushed for their enemies as opposed to crushing them. They are not yet clear that He will don the servant's towel instead of the soldier's sword. They are not yet clear that He will not inflict suffering, but He Himself will suffer as a ransom for many. They don't get that yet. And you're going to see that in the very next passage. So their vision of Christ, while distinct, is still partial. Which brings me to the significance of these two stories. We've seen an account that previews the Christian's identification of Jesus as the Messiah, and another that professes the identity of Jesus as the Messiah. But why does this matter? Why is this significant? Make two statements. I'll repeat them multiple times because I think this is the most important part of the message. Here's the first one True Christians will identify Jesus distinctly. This passage teaches us that true Christians will identify Jesus distinctly. True Christians will identify Jesus distinctly. Therefore, we must be clear about Jesus. If you're a real Christian here today, you will identify Jesus of Nazareth distinctly. You will see him as something special and different than other people see him. And because of that, since that is the very definition of what it means to be a Christian, we must be clear about who Jesus is. We must be clear. If you're here today and you're unsure, I want you to know that your identification, your identification of Jesus today stands before you to borrow from Frost's words like two roads in a yellow wood. But here's the crazy thing about these two roads. The Bible describes them as a broad one and a narrow one, a popular one and an unpopular one. They're not equally worn. They're not just similar looking. One is really popular and wide and everybody believes one thing about Jesus and the other is like this just really narrow little path that looks a little shady, to be honest with you. And that's the fork in the road facing you today. It is about the identity of Jesus. Who do you believe him to be? And you must be clear about this. See, I want you to know that a prophet, if you just think that Jesus was a prophet, All you're saying is that he was merely a spokesperson. He was merely a forerunner of God, a a messenger of God's end-time agenda. And that's what most people think of Jesus. 
Most intelligent people don't deny the existence of Jesus of Nazareth. There's just too much evidence for that. But what they'll say, though, is that, well, he was just a good prophet. He was a moral teacher. He was a nice man. You know what Christianity says about Jesus? You want to know what the gospel teaches about Jesus? That the Messiah, the Christ, was going to be the means of God's end-time agenda. The end of it. See, the other guys, the prophets, they always point to God's coming hero. But they themselves are not the point. They predicted God's final plan. Jesus fulfilled it. You see the difference between the two? I think the way that most people think about Jesus in error today, and you could be here thinking this way, and I want to reason with you for a moment. I think a lot of people think of Jesus in a similar way that they think of the Queen of England or Abraham Lincoln. I mean, if you know, like, well, I don't know British constitutional law very well, but I do understand at least that the Queen of England is more a symbolic leader than she is a real and effective leader. The prime minister is the one who leads the nation. Uh, the queen is, in all due respect, if you're British, she's the pomp and circumstance. She's, she's the tradition, but she doesn't have any real authority. You know, when you view Jesus as just this great historical figure, what you're saying is that he doesn't really have any real authority. He's a great figurehead for the Christian movement. He's actually somebody that yeah, brings it a lot, like he defines his ethos or something of that nature, but you're not getting the fact that he actually has authority. When you claim that Jesus is the Messiah, now it's not just a representative monarchy, but it's a real one. When you recognize that Jesus is God's promised king, you actually have to submit yourself to his rule. The other example I would give is somebody like Abraham Lincoln. We love Abraham Lincoln as Americans. Good old honest Abe with his beard and his top hat. and I mean, he's just, just a great figure. 16th president, abolished slavery. We like that guy. He tells the truth. And we think, you know what? Abraham Lincoln, he has a profound impact upon us today. We still look at his example. But you know what? He's dead. And he has no authority in our lives as Americans, even if there is a lot of nostalgia. When somebody says, no, I believe Jesus is a prophet. I don't think he's the Christ. You've got nostalgia, but you don't have submission to him as Lord. There is a difference between the two. And Jesus wants us to grasp that now. So here's the question for you. Right now, I want to make the fork in the road as explicit as possible. Do you believe Jesus to be the divine Messiah? Is he now your active hope for eternity and not just a historical figure who sparks a positive example? Is he the one that can fix the anarchy that sin has introduced to this world and to your own world? If you can't answer yes to these questions, you are not yet a Christian. If you're not sure and you want more clarity, you say, I'm close, I have a few questions about it, I'm not all that positive about the identity of Christ. Um, look, let's talk. Let's talk. I love that about our church, that we hang around for a long time afterwards. Pastors hang around, people hang around. There's nothing else we'd want to do today. And help answer some of your questions about Jesus and who he is.
But maybe, I think that some of you are here today, and you've been wrestling with this question long enough, that you're convinced. I think some of you are convinced, no more conversation is needed, you get who Jesus is, and maybe the next thing for you is just simply to confess your faith in Him and make it public by talking to one of us about being baptized. That's the next thing. It is so simple to receive the gospel. It is just when the Holy Spirit opens your eyes and you recognize that Jesus is the hero that you yourself can't be or some other figure can't be, and when you receive that, you then identify with Him and salvation has happened. The gospel has been received. This is important not just for the people who are in the room who are unsure about the identity of Christ, but Christians today, please hear me, I beg of you. If it is true, if it is true that Christians will identify Jesus distinctly, they will see him as something different than just a prophet, we too must be clear about Jesus. I beg you, be clear about Jesus. We have to press people we have to have hard conversations. We have to get beyond the syrupy, sentimental thoughts about Jesus' kindness and His passion and His influence and His grace. Lean in to who Jesus is when you're having conversations with your non-saved friends because I assure you, they would love to just say, yeah, I think Jesus was a good person. And we have this tendency as believers to think, oh, good. I'm... Well, they think Jesus is okay. They didn't say anything bad about Jesus. Listen, a half-truth is worse than a lie. I'd rather have somebody tell me he was a charlatan than say, I think he was just a good moral man and a religious teacher. And we're always looking to avoid the conflict. What I'm telling you is there's anything you press in on in your conversations with people that don't know Christ, press in on Christ. Press in on who they think Him to be. Don't just say, oh, well, they have good thoughts of Jesus, and I think they're a brother in Christ. No, they're not a brother in Christ, unless they view this Jesus to be that hero that was promised in the Old Testament. That's why Jesus said, who do you say that I am? This is why Paul said in Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, you shall be saved. You know what the implication of that is? If you don't confess with your mouth and you don't believe in your heart, you will not be saved. This is imperative for our culture today. Walter Urell, in his standard work on Christian cults, provides a great warning. The book, by the way, titled The Kingdom of the Cults, is an interesting one. It's about this thick, and it walks through all the different errant expressions of Christianity. In his forward, though, he gives us a good warning, and here's the warning that I would pass along for you guys. He says, when you're talking to somebody who's not a Christian, unless you define your terms, the semantic jungle that the cults have created will envelop you making it difficult, if not impossible, for a proper contrast to be made between the teaching of error and orthodox Christianity. You hear what he's saying? Define your terms. Be clear with people. That's why I'm a little less hesitant to do drive-by evangelism sometimes, because people don't understand what we mean. Have long, hard conversations. We have to define our terms. So think about these. Here's some popularly misunderstood terms that need to be defined in our culture. You ready? A free gift. How many of you have ever seen that one at Christmas time? You get a free gift if you buy blah, 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 blah. All right, we need to redefine free. That is not free. Another example of something that has been redefined, all right, and this, this is in our world. The People's Republic of China. All right, folks, um, that's not a republic. <laughs> that's communism. <laughs> that's a dictatorship. But the term needs to be redefined for people. 
Another one is pro-choice. Oh, well, a woman's just making a choice. I'm not trying to make a political statement, but I'm telling you that's called murder. It's not called a choice. And in a similar way, when we talk to people about Jesus, they may attach some warm, fuzzy feeling to this vague notion of Jesus, and he's just some deity out there somewhere who's this great man. No, you need to push for clarity. Ask them to define their terms. What do you mean you believe in Jesus? That might be the best question you could ever ask. What do you mean by that? Tell me, when you say you believe in Jesus, what does that entail for you? Dig deep, find out. Who do you believe Jesus of Nazareth to be? Show them who the Bible says He is, and then pray for God to change their mind. 1 Corinthians 2, 16 and 17, come back to me again, where it says that the natural man perceives not the things of the Spirit, for he's not spiritually discerned. The, the idea is that the Holy Spirit has to make these things known to us and we need to trust Him for that. All right, you ready for the second area of significance and we're done. Here's the second significance of these two stories. True Christians will identify Jesus gradually. True Christians will identify Jesus gradually. Therefore, we must be patient concerning Jesus. True Christians will identify Jesus gradually. Therefore, we must be patient concerning Jesus. Look, just as Jesus healed the blind man gradually, so also Peter and the disciples would see and comprehend Jesus gradually. Have you got that yet? You probably don't realize it because there's no timeline here. But we've been in the book of Mark for four or five months. But this probably represents one year of Jesus being with these men, at least. With Jesus, men with Jesus, every day, and yet they still don't get it over a year into his ministry. But understanding was taking place. You know what? First, they obviously recognized him to be some type of a teacher, as evidenced by the fact that they would leave their jobs to go follow and learn from him. And then, we, as we're reading through the narrative, we find them to eventually understand a little more. Uh, they, they get the fact that he is uh, some type of a prophet. And then when he does the thing on the sea and calms the storm, they're like, whoa, what kind of man is this? They recognize him to be more than a prophet, but they still don't know who he is. And it's not till here that they finally get the fact that this is the Christ. And even then, three more times, Jesus is going to teach them what the Messiah is and will do, and three more times, they are going to object. <laughs> and it's not till the resurrection itself that they will fully understand who Jesus is. Look, all I want you to get from this, if you're unsure today, Look, it isn't just some moment in time. It's gradual understanding of Jesus. He is progressively revealing Himself to you, and we've been doing our best. I say we, because it's not just me. We have been doing our best to show you that this Jesus is the Christ. And in the end, though, you're not going to be convinced apart from Him. He is the one that shows it, and He shows it on His own timetable. Listen, some of you are on the right path. You may already be there. But what I want you to get here is that it seems that the disciples first understood him to be one thing, and then they finally understood him to be the thing that he wanted them to understand. That was a progressive thing. It did not happen all at one time. Why else would he do that miracle in two stages? Why else would he make it clear to them that he could give sight and then give full sight? He was letting them know that their understanding of who He is and what He's done could come. He could enable that. But He would also enable it with even more clarity in the future. 
If you're here today and you're a Christian, since this can be a gradual thing, people's understanding of Christ, I think, I think we need a better timetable. I think we need a better timetable for people coming to faith in Christ. Well, this is what I, I know this is going to sound trite. I know this is going to sound boring, but here it is. All right, this is a practical point for you. Do your best to present the gospel and let God do the rest. Do your best to present the gospel and let God do the rest. I know it's frustrating when you share God's truth with somebody and they don't yet come to faith in Him. Let the Spirit do His work. You know, it's interesting in the Matthew account of this passage, Matthew chapter 16, verse 17, an interesting note is added here where Simon confesses that Peter, I mean, Peter, uh, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, and then immediately Jesus says to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for spirit and flesh have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He acknowledges that in his own natural human thinking, he wouldn't be able to get this, but the Spirit enables it. We need to let the Spirit do His work. See, when I was growing up, the only conversions I ever heard of were like big, like U-turn in the middle of the road, chaos type of conversions. Like, it all happened at one time, you know, somebody got struck by a bolt of lightning, and then they repented there in the hospital bed, and their life changed forever from that point forward. And it just made it seem like conversion was just always that. Now admit, there is a point in time in which we are saved, and a point, I mean, a point in time in which we're not saved, and a point in time in which we are, but the reality is most of the people that I meet, when I ask them now, so tell me about when you came to faith in Christ, you know what they tell me? You know, it was like sometime between here and here. I would, I would encourage you, just ask people right here. Ask people at Faith Bible Church, when did you come to faith in Christ? Some people may say, well, yes, it was on Friday, October the 27th at 3 p.m. But most people know that like, I don't, the truth was just working, and then all of a sudden I realized that I did believe, as opposed to did not believe. And I think that's what this, this story shows us, is that we, we, we always are gradually beginning to understand more and more of Jesus, but ultimately in the end, He's the one that opens our eyes and the one that gives us greater clarity. So... We stand at the proverbial fork in the road again this morning. This one issue, does it really make all the difference? Is it really the one thing that matters more than any other? What do you choose? What do you decide? Who do you say that he is? Before you make your decision about what to do with this message today, we're going to pray again. In the end, he's the one that gives sight. And we're going to pray again, and we're going to pray in an interesting way. We're actually going to pray through the song that we sang to open our time together. Show us Christ. Make that your prayer today. And then make your decision about Jesus and who he is. Phil, please come lead us.